0: Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. A quick little bit of news: so, I shared in our last episode that Altitude Crime, at the time, had almost thirteen thousand downloads/slash listens between our podcast platforms and YouTube. Well, some exciting news today, we actually hit 10,000 downloads in just podcast platforms. So that is super, super exciting. Uh, Maybe a little confusing from the announcement that I gave before, but I love seeing these milestones and it's you guys that make that happen. So thank you so much for tuning in every week and just keeping things going because that, again, that number is you guys. It's amazing. Like I said last week, I am doing a special for suggesting a unique crime on the AltitudeCrime.com Suggest a Case link. If your case gets chosen, you will get 20% off for suggesting that crime. But the key phrase there is a unique crime. Don't tell me to do John Binet or something that's everybody knows about Colorado. Give me something unique that I might not know about or might just not know a lot about. So you'll see from the title of this episode that this is a fatal attraction case. And we did cover one of these in one of our historic crime episodes, which was actually a two-parter episode. But today we're hitting one that is more modern day and it really did become known as the Fatal Attraction case. This was because this murder came right on the heels of the 1987 Glenn Close thriller named Fatal Attraction, which was about an unstable mistress. This case, featuring the victim Diane Hood, was also one of Lieutenant Joe Kenda's most prominent cases. I'm sure you all know him from Investigation Discovery and the Homicide Hunter show. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. On September 12, 1999, Diane Hood was leaving a lupus support meeting at the Otis Park Community Center on North Iowa Street in the Knob Hill neighborhood of Colorado Springs. This was an area that Diane would have felt comfortable in. While the Knob Hill neighborhood may be bordered by some sketchier areas of town, the area itself in 1990 was a quiet area with really low crime. Her support meeting ended at 8.30 p.m. and she walked out to head to her car with her friend Karen. On the way to the parking lot, a person dressed in fatigues and a ski mask grabbed at Diane's purse. She tried to give the purse to her pursuer and tried to run away. But when she turned, the perpetrator shot Diane in the back. When Diane hit the ground, the gunman stepped toward her and shot her in the chest. Once the trigger was pulled the second time, her assailant took her purse, threw it over their shoulder, and ran. The leader of the lupus support meeting, whose name was Sarah, was still in the building. She was actually a nurse and called 911 while she started CPR on Diane, but it would be little help. Diane was declared dead when she arrived at the hospital at 8.52 p.m. 32-year-old Diane Elaine Hood was described as a bright, sunny person by people that knew her. She had been a cheerleader when she was younger and ended up going on to marry Brian Hood. He had actually gotten Diane pregnant prior to their marriage. Brian was an all-American football player in his younger years and was a good-looking insurance salesman who also had titled himself as a born-again Christian. Diane and Brian had three children together, and Diane was noted to be a wonderful mother. To say the least, Diane and her family seemed like a pretty all-American family and didn't give police any initial leads to go off of. In looking at the scene, investigators would find that Diane had been killed execution style. The first bullet entered the back of her shoulder when she turned to run away from the assailant, and it exited out that same shoulder. The second shot was directly to the middle of her chest a canine unit was brought in to look around the scene and see if they could pick up a scent. They did, and almost a mile away, deep into housing in the area, the dog hit at a garbage can behind a home. In there, investigators would find clothing. It would be gloves, a green jacket, camouflage fatigue style pants, and a black ski mask. After hitting on this garbage can where the clothing is found, the dog lost its scent. And investigators assume that's because the perpetrator had a car waiting there and got into a car at this point and the scent ends. Being that they found fatigues, this initially led investigators to think that the killer could be in the military and it was not far-fetched as Fort Carson is also in Colorado Springs. When the clothing was sent to the lab, they would find a few things. There was brown human hair inside the ski mask. The clothing had dog hair on it and the gloves were positive for gun residue. This indicated that this was definitely their killer's clothes. Diane's purse was also found not very far away from the scene by a canine unit, and there was no money or cards in it supposedly taken by the killer. In 1990, a shooting in this area of Colorado Springs was pretty unusual, and while police maybe kind of questioned this mugger angle a little bit, they had to work it. They had to work with what they knew. This case was also unusual because Diane's home life just did not glean anyone that would want to hurt her. The first person that police questioned was Karen, who was Diane's friend that walked out with her and witnessed the shooting. She was the only eyewitness to this crime. She told investigators that the killer was stocky and probably around about five foot six but she couldn't give much more than that. Due to what the killer was wearing, she couldn't tell the killer's race, she couldn't get an eye color, and there was really nothing else to go on. The next stop for police was Brian Hood. He was questioned within hours of the murder, and he was pretty squeaky clean too. Again, he and Diane had this real all-American family, and he had an alibi. He was at home with their three children. Hood also did not fit the physical description of the killer, as he was 6'3 and 220 pounds. Brian Hood did meet with the media to plea for information about his wife's killing. According to John Souther's book, No Higher Calling, No Greater Responsibility, A Prosecutor Makes His Case, Brian Hood had asked via the media for help to find the quote-unquote evil scum, who murdered his wife. So after questioning the eyewitness and the person closest to Diane Hood, police are already at kind of a standstill. In an effort to glean some kind of information, police started to canvas the neighborhood around Otis Park. A name would come up that they would start to look into, and that was a man named David Burns. A woman in the neighborhood dropped his name, and he had the great moniker around town of Homicidal Dave. He just had a bad reputation. He was a veteran from the first Gulf War, and it sounds like he was just kind of unhinged and probably in need of some mental health support. Uh, He was known to wear camo, and he was known to have outbursts and conflicts with people throughout the neighborhood. But when police tracked him down, David Burns had an alibi. He was shooting pool with friends, and that was confirmed by multiple people. So another dead end. With the canvas not giving them any new information, investigators decided to look back at what evidence they did know, and something became striking. Karen, the eyewitness, had said that when the second shot was fired, Diane was on her back and the killer walked towards her prior to pointing the gun and shooting again, and that was the shot that would hit Diane in the chest. Looking back at this, Lieutenant Joe Kenda decided that this crime seemed much more personal. Both bullets were able to be recovered during Diane's autopsy, and it showed that she had been shot with a 45 caliber revolver. But this revolver would prove to be unique. The bullet was from an antique gun, which was an 1870s Colt 45 Peacemaker, which was a single-action revolver. This Colt is a rare gun to find, and while they didn't know exactly who the gun belonged to, it did drastically shrink the pool of possible suspects. Investigators also remembered that Brian Hood had mentioned that he went to the gym every day, and that's how they get the name of Jennifer Rialli. At the time of Diane's murder, Jennifer Rialli was 28 years old. She had graduated from college with honors and was married to an army officer. She was also the mother to two little girls. She had a part-time job at a florist not far away from the area where the murder happened. So that was investigators' next stop. The florist did confirm that he employed Jennifer Rialli, and he also went to church with her and her husband. He said that he had started to get to know her husband, Ben Rialli, a bit more because both of them collected antique guns. With this bit of information, investigators went to talk to Ben Rialli next because could he possibly be a husband who was jealous over her friendship with Brian Hood? Ben Rialli was a captain in the army and he was also an intelligence officer. He had been stationed at Fort Carson. Physically, Ben fit the profile that the investigators were looking for. He was 5'9 and around 160 pounds, so really not too far of a body's description away from what the eyewitness saw. The alibi that he provided to police was that he was working, but he was there by himself, so no one could confirm this, and it wasn't a solid alibi. And... He made me seem kind of suspicious because he wasn't super cooperative when he was asked to look at the clothing that they'd found at the scene. According to Lieutenant Joe Kenda, he didn't even really look at the clothes at first. Kenda had to threaten to call his CO before Ben really takes a good look at them and says, yeah, these are mine. Ben does willingly tell the police about his gun collection, including the Colt 45. And he does hand it over to police, but the gun was so well cleaned that there were no fingerprints on it. So Ben Rialli is really not in a good spot right here. His clothing and the gun match the crime scene. He goes on to explain to investigators that he had a really strained marriage with Jennifer Rialli. and they were actually separated when Diane was killed. He hadn't seen this clothing that was found at the scene for about three weeks due to him being separated from his wife, and he had moved out. He also said how the gun was kept at an armory, but he had taken it out because Jennifer Rialli was interested in having the gun for protection. The two had gone shooting for her to test it out, but just a few days later, and actually the very morning that he was being questioned, she insisted that he take the gun back and brought the gun wrapped to him in a cloth and cleaned. So Ben hands over this gun to investigators. So while initially this didn't look good for Ben Reale, they're now realizing that it was Jennifer who had access to these items in the time right before and during the murder. According to the eyewitness, Karen, she had said that the murderer put the purse over their arm when they went to run off. A man wouldn't do that, but a woman would automatically put her purse on her shoulder. This totally changed the angle of the investigation. Police thought they were looking for a man, but their killer was a woman. So while Ben Reale is still at the police department, investigators decide to bring in Jennifer and let them have a little chat and see if this would work her up and cause her to basically, you know, like spill the beans. In the meantime, while they're allowing this conversation to happen, the lab gives a call and confirmed that the gun, that Colt 45 Peacemaker that belonged to Ben Reilly, that Jennifer Reilly had access to, was the exact gun used in the murder. When sat down, Reilly initially denies everything. She says, couldn't have been her, the gun was probably stolen, but I don't know about you. I don't think it's often that somebody steals a gun and then returns it back to your house. So investigators used what they knew to press her. They had found out that the hair that was found inside the clothing used in the murder was a match to Reilly's dog. They also let her know that ballistics had tested that gun and they were 90% certain the bullet came from Ben's gun, which she had access to. When Jennifer really realizes she just has no way out, she totally caved and told them everything. She confessed to investigators and told them that she'd been having an affair with Brian Hood. This affair started in May, 1990 and ran for about eight months. They had originally met at the gym in the hot tub. Jennifer Rialli told investigators that the relationship started off platonic and she had no intention of it turning sexual, but it did. Brian Hood had set up to come to Rialli's house to show her some of the insurance options he had, and this meeting would end up in a sexual encounter on Rialli's washing machine. According to John Souther's book, this detail about the case earned him a nickname with prosecutors and they would call him, quote, the Maytag man, unquote. As just a side note here, what reality did not know was this was not the first time that Brian Hood had cheated on Diane. I mentioned earlier in the episode that Diane had gotten pregnant prior to their marriage. And at this time, Brian had actually been cheating on her way back then. So Jennifer Reale details this relationship to police and says that Hood would come over to her house when Ben was out or was out on orders or whatever it may be, and that they were falling in love. So as they get deeper into this relationship, Brian Hood really starts to try to convince Jennifer Reale to kill his wife. They talked about it for about three months as far as killing her, what the options were, et cetera, et cetera. Brian Hood had even told Reale that at one point he had considered making like a bad left-hand turn so that Diane's passenger side of the car would be hit by ongoing traffic and hopefully that would kill her because that's something a normal person thinks. One of the ways that he worked to persuade her was Diane did have lupus at the time. Like I said, she was murdered leaving a lupus support group. And he told Jennifer Reale that Diane was just so sick that she would be better off being killed. She wouldn't have to suffer through this disease. But in fact, Diane was improving from lupus. She had found out that her lupus was mild and that it could be controlled with medication. And Brian Hood knew this. According to Jace Larson's reporting for the Denver Channel, Brian Hood had told Reality that the killing was quote unquote, God's plan. Being the born again Christian that he claimed, he used quotes from the Bible in order to persuade her to kill his wife. He claimed that murder and adultery were basically the same tier of sin, so if they could be forgiven for adultery, they would be forgiven for murder and it wouldn't be a big deal. Ironically enough, he also claimed that he could not get divorced because it would be bad for his business image and bad for his image as a born-again Christian. So let me recap that for you. Adultery, murder, totally fine. Divorce, totally off the table. The idea to make the killing look like a robbery and shoot Diana outside of her support group was an idea that Brian Hood had brought up to Rialli a couple days before the murder. He basically told Jennifer that the police were going to be too dumb to figure it out and they'd never ever get caught. And for some reason, this is the piece of information that finally sways. Jennifer Rialli. she's going to kill his wife. And in a final act of instruction, Brian Hood tells Reality that she needs to shoot Diane twice. And this is to make sure that without a doubt, she is dead. According to Christine Polisic's reporting for People.com, Riali claimed that Brian Hood had told her, quote, if you love me, you can do this and we can have a life together, unquote. Jennifer Rialli tops off her confession by saying, after leaving the scene of the crime and disposing of this murder uniform she was wearing, she picked up her kids, went home, and made her family dinner like nothing happened. They arrest her on the spot for first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. This happens just two days after Diane was shot. So next, they bring in good old Brian Hood. He claimed that he tried to break up with Jennifer Reale the day of the killing, and she just went So and went and killed Diane. He had nothing to do with it. It was just her way of getting revenge. And he basically acted like he was also a victim in this situation. Needless to say, investigators didn't go for that. So let's get into the trials for these two. Now, a little fun fact here. Current Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers was actually the El Paso County 4th Judicial District Attorney at the time that this case happened, and he oversaw the prosecution of both Jennifer Rialli and Brian Hood. Reale did try to go for an insanity plea, but it didn't stick. She did undergo a mental evaluation, and she was found sane to stand trial. So while the basic story here was that Brian Hood convinced Jennifer Rialli to kill Diane Hood. There were witnesses that were brought forth at trial that said that Reali was actually a very domineering person, and these people that said this weren't really sure if someone could really break her will enough to brainwash her to make her do something this terrible. According to the Equal Justice Foundation, the eyewitness Karen Johnson did testify. And in that testimony, she described the rage in Jennifer Reale's eyes. She said, quote, I saw her eyes and they were dark eyes and full of hate. She walked over to where Diane was lying. Diane was begging for her life and she took very careful aim and shot again, unquote. Now, Jennifer Rialli was not up for the death penalty in this case. The prosecution had actually taken that off the table because she had agreed to testify against Brian Hood. And as we'll talk here in a minute, this was really key to getting him any kind of conviction. Jennifer Rialli was convicted of both first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Jennifer Rialli was sentenced in 1992, and this was a life sentence. She would not be eligible for parole until the year 2030. According to Ginny Deems reporting for the Los Angeles Times, Judge Jane Looney said of this case that Rialli quote, thought herself to be in love and allowed herself to be influenced by a man whose goal was to use her to kill his wife, unquote. In 2011, the governor of Colorado at the time, Bill Ritter, decided to commute Rialli's sentence. And this made her immediately eligible for parole. She had served just 19 years of her sentence at this point. And Mayor Southers, the former prosecutor, also asked the governor to change Riali's sentence. His reasoning was that she was so cooperative in getting hood behind bars that they wouldn't have accomplished without her that she should basically receive some credit for that. according to reporting from the Sentinel, Reality's lawyer, Elvin Gentry, had said, quote, she's been a model prisoner. I don't think there's any likelihood at all she would ever harm anybody again. I've thought that since her conviction, unquote. As of June 2011, when she could first apply for parole, it really was not met with good feelings from both the family and the community. Diane's brother, David Moore, who was a Texas attorney, fought against a possible release for Riali. He felt that she should serve forever, just like his sister was gone for forever. David was not able to fight for his sister in future parole hearings because he died in a car crash in 2012. So Riali was not sent out on parole in 2011, and this was mainly due to the strong opposition from Diane's family. She would end up getting denied again in 2014, 2015, and 2016, as she was still considered to be at risk for a number of different reasons. In 2014, Jennifer Rialli was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she was 52 at the time of that diagnosis. It was also this same year that she was sent to a Lakewood halfway house, and basically the reason for the move was her own good behavior. She also had started chemotherapy at this point. Her request in 2015 was reviewed, and it was denied because they wanted her to be in the intensive supervision parole inmate program for a bit longer. There's a few things that happened within this program, and it really allowed her quite a few freedoms. She was able to have a job. She was able to drive a car. She was allowed to have an apartment. And she also had a dog and a cat in that apartment. Another reason that she did not get parole in 2015 was because of the narrative that she had about the crime. She still emphasized how much Brian Hood was involved and that he had forced her to commit the crime. And the parole board felt that she still needed to kind of work through this and take more responsibility for her part in the murder. Jennifer Rialli became a born-again Christian while incarcerated, and she became a part of the Urban Ministry Institute in Denver. And she also worked to connect offenders to different resources via the Inside Out Ministries. She had explained that these were efforts that she wanted to continue once she did eventually get out of jail. Her October 2017 parole hearing was the fourth that she had been through, and it would end up being her final one. On December 12, 2017, Jennifer Rialli was released on parole. She had served almost 30 years of her sentence in jail. The parole board did look at that prior to this incident, Jennifer Rialli had no criminal history and they really felt that she would not hurt someone else or be a danger to society and that this incident was very specific to Brian and Diane Hood. But upon her release, she did have two requirements. She could not have any contact with the Hood family, and she had to pay the family restitution, and that was in the amount of $39,475.09. Jennifer Rialli died on March twenty-fourth, two 2018 at the age of 55, just three months after her release. It's not confirmed by her family or any other source if it was the cancer that did cause her death, but one can assume such. So let's look at what happened with Brian Hood. So initially, Lieutenant Joe Kinda was really worried that just Riali's testimony was not enough to convict Hood. It would turn into kind of a he said, she said, and those cases just are not clear to jurors and they're not very successful. But as word of the arrest of Jennifer Riali and details of the murder leaked out, one of Brian Hood's friends came forward. His name was Frank Patton and he was a bartender. And Hood had basically just really flippantly told him like he wished his wife would just like go ahead and die already. And then a week later, guess what? Diane was dead. But Frank Patton would not be the only friend to come forward. A lot of Brian Hood's friends were afraid of him because they had heard him talk about him killing his wife. Having enough people being able to say this built them enough of a case to go to trial. Brian Hood's trial started a year after Diane was killed. In addition to the people that were able to say that he wanted his wife dead and Rielli's testimony about how he convinced her to kill Diane, Brian Hood had also taken out a $100,000 life insurance policy on Diane. The interesting thing about this policy, the amount would double if she was murdered. Brian Hood did not get convicted of first degree murder, but instead he was convicted for conspiracy to commit murder and for criminal solicitation. He was sentenced in 1992 as well, and he got 37 years in jail, but he couldn't be released after serving only 12. According to the Equal Justice Foundation, John Southers said of this sentencing, quote, Our only disappointment and sense of less than full justice in this case is that Brian Hood did not receive a life sentence we felt that he deserved at least life in prison and that it would be appropriate for the jury to consider the death penalty. Unquote. Brian Hood was sent to the Sterling Correctional Facility in Sterling, Colorado. And in 1997, he escaped from the facility but was caught within 18 hours. So there's something about this jail because this is actually the same facility that our serial killer from very early on episode Scott Kimball also tried to escape from. So That is what it is. (laughs) Hood was first eligible for parole on June 25th, 2011. Ironically enough, this was the same day that Jennifer Rialli had her sentence commuted. When he became eligible for parole again in February, 2019, it was granted and he was paroled officially on March 11th, 2019. He had served a total of 27 years. 22 of these was for his conviction, in his involvement with Diane's murder, and five of that was for charges linked to his escape from Sterling Correctional. He did try to get released earlier on, and those were denied. Prior to being paroled, he had to serve 15 months in county jail for a sentence for contraband. It seemed that maybe Brian Hood hasn't learned much of a lesson. Okay guys, you know what time it is. Let's get into some thoughts, and I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna bend your ear a little bit here because I have a lot of them. Musing number one, don't trust men ever. (laughs) These cases just kill me and I just wanna shake women sometimes. And I get, like we've talked about domestic violence and things like that. I get how somebody can get in your brain and just twist your reality and make you do things like this. I absolutely understand that. I think there is a level of this in cases like this. There definitely is. But words of caution here. And I will say this is one of my biggest pet peeves and this will always make me like walk away from someone. If someone uses the term, if you love me, guess what, they don't. I don't care if it's, if you love me, you'll give me your sandwich. That term, anytime I have heard about it in a case, anytime I've seen it in real life, it is just the beginning of a bad situation. Do not fall for this. This goes for anybody in a relationship. Doesn't have to be a woman with a man. It could be a man with a man. It could be anybody with anybody. Don't fall for this kind of reasoning because let's look at the real deal here. It's not like they still live together for forever and wrote each other letters in jail or whatever. These two turned on each other the second they were in custody. Like, it's gonna happen. (laughs) Musing number two. So I kind of alluded this right at the end of the episode here, but it kind of stuns me that Brian Hood got paroled because it doesn't really seem... Like he's really learned a lesson or that he's been super rehabilitated because here he goes to jail for this terrible crime, tries to break out of jail, gets another contraband sentencing. Like what Jennifer Reale did was terrible, but she was also a model prisoner when she was in jail, which I don't think you can say quite the same about Brian Hood. Musing number three. Something that struck me in covering this case is how different, just in the span of 30 years, these kind of trials have changed. You look at this where they had to get enough people like saying that Brian Hood had convinced her or talked about it. They really had to build that evidence. Like you look at something like the Kelsey Barreth case that we covered recently, where in today's age, you have so much technological evidence. So had this case happened today, you probably would have had emails or texts or something back and forth between Hood and Reality about setting this up or him kind of brainwashing her or bending the truth. And it makes you realize in s- cases like that, like how much easier that evidence is to gather now. Music number four. So I said originally the thought was that the killer was a man. And you could say that that was flawed on the point of investigators that why wouldn't you keep an open mind, blah, 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 blah. Well, keep this in mind. Most domestic violence is male perpetrated. That can be a man on a woman, a man on a man. But it's pretty unusual in this type of violence to have the woman be the perpetrator. And I don't know the statistics on this, but I don't think there's a lot of woman muggers out there either. Musing number five. So if you're not familiar with firearms, I mentioned that the Colt that was used in this crime was a single action. What that means is that that gun has to be cocked, that hammer has to be pulled back for every single time you fire. And I just want you to think for a moment how intentional that had to be for Jennifer Reale. Not only is Diane Hood on her back facing her, begging for her life, Jennifer Reale takes the time to step forward into that she leans into the moment and also takes a time to pull that hammer back again before she fires. So as much as there is that whole thing of brainwashing and this and that and this and that, you do have to realize also, regardless of anything in that actual moment, that's a lot of responsibility that that person has taken to do that. Musing number six, just a little piece of advice here. If your friend is talking a lot about wanting to kill his wife, maybe like mention something to somebody. I get, I guess people were afraid of him, but I don't know, like see something, say something. (laughs) Hear something, say something. Do anything besides not say something. (laughs) Musing number seven. So governor at the time, Bill Ritter, was really criticized for commuting Riali's sentence in 2011. And he did this as he was exiting office. But the office of the governor basically told the public like this just worked to even out the sentences. Juries tend to view woman killers differently. And like I said, in a not so technological age, there was not, you know, really, really concrete evidence in Hood's trial. And basically the governor's office said that this decision closed the gap between Reale's life in prison and Hood's 37 years. But... You also have to remember, they weren't convicted of the same crime. And it's not that you're doing it because her sentence was too harsh. You're doing it because Brian Hood got off easy. So let me know what you think about that. Uh, Comment on social, send me an email. I want to hear what you guys think about that. Musing number eight. So I don't know if like prison escapes are more common in the past 50 years than I thought they were, (laughs) but I still can't get over that both Scott Kimball and Brian Hood had escape plots or Brian Hood did escape from Sterling Correctional Facility. Um, I guess I didn't really know people really tried that hard still, but apparently that's the thing. And my last musing here, musing number nine, So after Diane's death, her three children went on to be raised by their grandparents, who were Brian's parents, Andy and Suzanne Hood. In 2017, Diane's son, Jared Hood, who was 40 years old at that time, decided that after 27 years past the murder, he was ready to publicly forgive Jennifer Reale for what she'd done in the name of Christ. Now, Jared was nine when his mother was killed. According to Christine Pelisek's reporting for People.com, Jared had said of his mom that quote, I will honor her legacy by continuing in the way of Christ. I believe this is what she would have wanted. Unquote. He also was vocal in supporting the parole board when Jennifer Reilly had her release in 2017. And he also explained that he's ready to forgive his father for the murder as well. If you're wondering, Jared now lives in Dallas, Texas. He's a child and family counselor and he's married and has two children. So I also wanted to give a shout out on a couple of books here. I did not know this and it actually was a really great resource. Uh, so current mayor John Suthers wrote a book that encompasses many crimes called No Higher Calling, No Greater Responsibility. A Prosecutor Makes His Case. Uh, I would definitely recommend checking it out. I found it on Google Books, which you can read excerpts for free, which is really cool. Um, but definitely an interesting read, especially if you are very familiar with the Colorado Springs area and Colorado Springs crime, you probably will see things you you've heard of. There was a book written about this case that I did not read in preparation for this episode. I'm finding if I read every book that's written about a case, you guys will never have a new episode coming out. Um, and I felt like I had really good information between the homicide hunter information from Lieutenant Joe Kenda, who was investigator, and John Suthers's book, who he was the prosecutor. I felt very confident in the information I was giving you guys. But if you want to check it out, it's called Sweet Evil, A Chilling True Story of Erotic Manipulation And Deadly Love by Steven Singular, and I will have a link to that at AltitudeCrime.com. Okay, guys. Well, thanks so much for hanging in there. This is a pretty iconic modern-day Colorado Springs crime. It was a pretty big deal when it happened, and it's been um, very residual in town. So I appreciate you guys listening and learning about Diane Hood's case. Don't forget, if you have it up on your screen, please, please, please do it. Follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform, or if you're one of my wonderful listeners/watchers on YouTube please connect with me on social media. I'd like to hear what you guys have to think about Reale's sentence being commuted and you know, Brian hood getting out a little early. I'd really like to hear what your guys's feedback is. You can reach me on Instagram at altitude crime podcast, Facebook and Twitter at altitude crime, or there is an email listed on the website, which speaking of the website, you can find source materials on there at altitudecrime.com, as well. As that suggest a case link. Like I said, you'll get 20% off if you suggest a case and I cover it. It. And if I can really sink my teeth into it, who knows? You might get some free stuff too. Well, thanks again for spending another week with me. If you're a new listener, welcome, welcome, welcome. 10K is huge. We're going to be hitting 15 between podcasts and YouTube here just any day. Super excited about that. Super excited to have you guys listening going into 2022. Make it great. And I'll talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 40, The Fatal Attraction Case, The Diane Hood Case, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.